Thank you, Dale. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 23 as we pick up where we left off. Luke chapter 23, we're going to begin reading at verse 25 and read through verse 31 just to catch us up in the story. Christ has um, been betrayed and uh, arrested. He's been uh, tried uh, various mock trials before the religious leaders, and then before Pilate, and then before Herod, uh, back then again to Pilate, who finally throws up in his hands. He, he can't figure out why these uh, Jews want him dead. Uh, he, he says, I've examined him. He's done nothing wrong. There's no guilt in him. Um, but they cried out, uh, give us Barabbas, the uh, insurrectionist, the, uh, the rebel, the murderer, and, uh, and to crucify Jesus. And so as we pick up the story, Jesus is now uh, on his way uh, to the cross. It's a very poignant scene. Uh, deathbed scenes tend to be poignant, uh, but this, there's nothing um, sentimental about this. This is the most serious moment in the history of the world as the Son of God is on his way um, to accomplish uh, the, the salvation of sinners and the restoring, making new of all things and on his way to the cross, Jesus has a word for those who are following him and, uh, and weeping. Uh, Jesus is, is once again um, lovingly showing people what they don't see, their great need. And uh, we're going to notice that as we study it together. So let's pick it up. Luke uh, chapter uh, 23. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of uh, women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, this morning we want to hear from our Lord. We want to see him in all of his beauty, his love, his truth. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to, to truly respond to him in faith and love. I thank you so much that your Holy Spirit's been given to help us understand these things. I pray that you bless me as I, as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to uh, invite you this morning to imagine yourself standing on the top of the hill Golgotha, um, where crucifixions probably happened um, on a routine, more routine basis, and yet uh, you're looking down the road, most likely a dirt road, and uh, there's a crowd approaching. At the head of the crowd is a man, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a condemned man. There's probably a soldier or two uh, walking alongside of him. He, is, he has been beaten. Uh, his face is, is bloodied and bruised. Uh, he's wearing a crown of thorns. He is uh, clearly a, uh, a condemned man, moments away from being nailed to a cross 
and hung there until uh, he dies. Uh, right behind him, you would see uh, another man. Uh, you don't know his name, but we're told his name is Simon of Cyrene. Mark tells us he was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and commentators suggest that, that the reason Mark mentions that is because these uh, men were uh, believers, Christians, known uh, to the early church. Simon of Cyrene was just an ordinary man in the city, uh, maybe making his way into the town and, and met the crowd, but he's been commandeered by the soldiers in order to carry the cross of Jesus, most likely because Jesus is too weak, uh, having been beaten, um, whipped, and uh, the soldiers want to make sure that he doesn't perish on the way, but uh, on the cross as has been ordered, and so... Um, Right behind Jesus, you would, you would see Simon carrying uh, a cross for, for Christ. And then behind Simon would be the crowds. Uh, Luke tells us there followed him a great multitude of people uh, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. When Luke uh, tells us that these were uh, the people, the Greek word that he uses there is the word that would be used for the common people. These are not the, these are not the authorities. They're not the religious leaders. They're not the Sadducees. They're not the Pharisees. Uh, these are the rabble, uh, the unkempt, the, um, the normal, common people that uh, Jesus knew and loved. So these are, not the, these are not the people who were enemies of Christ. These are not the people who were uh, at the front of this movement to have him crucified. Uh, we know in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus looked on the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. The, the men that had been called by God to care for their souls uh, cared only for their own physical well-being and cared nothing for the souls of God's people. In fact, Jesus, if you remember, told the Pharisees you travel over land and sea to make uh, you know, converts, and when, when you make them one, you make them twice the son of hell that you are. That's the leadership that these, uh, the people had. And so Jesus had compassion on them. They have a special place in his heart. We're told that there are specifically, uh, Luke mentions women. The crowd is most likely predominantly women. And again, there's just the, the ordinary housewives and, and women of the town, and they're, they're mourning and lamenting. If you've ever seen a, a funeral procession in another part of the world where people are much more expressive, that's what you would have here. And, and these, this is not just quiet um, sniffling as people make their way uh, up the hill, this, the, the, the words here are very expressive. The word for mourn actually comes from the word, it's the same word as the word to beat, and that's because they would be physically beating themselves in, a, in an expression of their grief, beating their breasts, probably, maybe slapping themselves. But the, the, the lamenting then would be these wails, Loud cries and, and maybe songs of, uh, of lament. It's very, very expressive. It's very loud. And so this would be the sight that, that, that you see as you're standing on Golgotha and you're looking down the road and these people are coming. And, and you know that they're lamenting for Jesus. That's what the text says. They're, 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 they're wailing and crying for him. 
Now, some of these women would most likely have been professional mourners, people who, who did this at funerals. Doesn't mean they didn't care. They, are, they have a place in the society, in the community. They're sort of like the worship leaders in that sense. They, they lead the people in expressing their grief. They lead the, the, the crowd in their laments. And undoubtedly, many folks here would, have, would be devastated by what's taking place. They had hoped that this was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had hoped that this was, as some had suggested, the Messiah. But even if he had been only a great prophet of God, as, as many of them were convinced, these, they had heard him preach and, and they'd seen the miracles. They knew who Jesus was in, in that sense. They, and, and they could not believe that this man, this good man, this great man of God is being crucified. It just it didn't seem possible that such an awful death reserved for the very worst of people, such an excruciating death, would, would, would happen to Jesus and that at the hands of the religious leaders. And so if you were standing on top of the hill looking down the road, you, you would have been touched by the, the pathos, the tragedy of the scene. You would have sensed the, the in profound injustice of all of it. And you would, have, you would have been deeply moved by the great sorrow, the wailing, the lamenting of the crowds. You, you know this is, this is this, the realities that you're facing here are overwhelming. Uh, they're, they're stark. And you wouldn't see the most important thing. You would see the injustice. You'd see the sorrow. You'd see the men bearing the cross and the man about to be put on the cross, but you wouldn't see what Jesus sees. And that's what Jesus addresses. Some of the most shocking words, I think, in the Bible, because you, you simply do not expect this. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. It's shocking words because it's, it's shocking on the one hand that Jesus even notices them, much less addresses them. These are, these are um, the moments before, just moments before he goes to the cross. The, the thing that he had dreaded so deeply in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweat drops of blood and begged, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That moment is, is, is just ahead. He has plenty on his plate. He's going to experience the wrath of God, and he knows what the wrath of God means. He is going to experience the, the, the torment of hell, not in a metaphorical sense, the real thing. And he's going to experience it in a way that even goes beyond his human ability to comprehend as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, so why does he stop to speak to them? Why even bother? He, words are few. Remember, Jesus has not said anything at all to Herod. He said very little to Pilate. He had nothing very meaningful to say to the, 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 the religious leaders. Words are precious when, when you're about to die. And, and yet Jesus here turns and he, and he gives, in a sense, a final sermon. Why? Because he loves these people. He has compassion on them. 
And because Jesus knows what they don't know, Jesus knows that they are heading for their own day of judgment and they are completely unaware and unprepared. They don't see it. They don't know. And so Jesus warns them. I remember um, clearly when I was 11 years old, I, um, I think the date was September 30, 1974. Uh, our cows had been poisoned with PBB and uh, with a, it's a fire retardant got mixed in with the feed and the state had determined they all needed to be killed and so that day the trucks were going to come and load them up and uh, bring them up to a Calcasco where they would be shot and buried in a landfill. And so that morning I, I, uh, I walked in the barn after chores are done before I went to school and um, said goodbye to the cows. It sounds, but I did. And they didn't, of course, they had no idea what was going on. They're just being cows, right? They're eating their hay and drinking, and they have no idea. In a few hours, they're going to be loaded up on trucks, and then um, they won't be alive in 24 hours. See, Jesus, Jesus knows what's going to happen to these people. They have no clue. And so he says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. This is not bravado. This is not, um, I don't need your pity. It's, it's much more profound and loving than that. You see, Jesus knows why he's there. He knows what he's about. This is, this is why he has come. He has set his face to Jerusalem. He, this is, he's here to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what he had covenanted to do in, in the council of eternity past when the Father had called him to be the mediator, the advocate for sinners. He's going to lay down his life for his sheep. He knows this. He's going to bear their sins in his own body on the tree. He's going to atone for their crimes with his very blood but his death will not be his end. It is for, right, with the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. He knows that his father will not abandon his body to the grave to see decay. That in three days, this temple is going to be raised again. He is going to be a victor. He knows, he knows the whole story. He knows why he's there. And though it is awful, joy will come in the morning. Jesus isn't the tragedy the crisis of the moment does not belong to him. Ultimately, Jesus looks, he, the crisis belongs to, to them. And so he says to them, weep for yourself and weep for your children. Why? Because days are coming. Days are coming. And nothing can stop these days from coming. They've been determined. They've been ordained. And, and, and the day will come when people will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, again, if you're a Jewish woman, uh, you can't imagine saying anything like that. To, to bear children was, was, was the great blessing from God. To be barren was the great curse of God. What, what, would, what would move a, a Jewish woman to wish for the thing that all her life she had most feared? People will say to the mountains, fall on us. To the hills, cover us. Have you ever just stood below a, a, a cliff and, and, and thought about inviting that cliff to bury you? And What would make you do that? 
Well, you see, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. It's going to be sacked by the Romans. And, and it's, it, he, I think he's speaking here both of that, that awful event that's going to take place as God punishes and judges his people. There uh, were a million Jews, it's estimated, were just slaughtered outright. Hundreds of thousands more die from starvation. But it's also, I think, a, just a foretaste of end-time judgment. Where we read in, in Revelation where the, the kings of the earth will, will gather together and people from all over the, the, the world will be running and, and saying to the mountains, fall on us, cover us. Why? Because the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come and who can endure? You see, the, the, the Jesus is, is, is trying to help them see the crisis of humanity is that, is that we live, they live under a sentence of condemnation. They don't see this. These words would have been shocking, strange. Maybe Jesus is delirious. Maybe the, the pain has gotten to him. Maybe he's forgotten uh, who he's talking to. These are the daughters of Jerusalem. They're not, they're not Gentiles. They're not flagrant known sinners. These are the mothers and daughters of Israel. And they're quite, they're quite sure that, that judgment, whatever judgment there might be, it's not, it's not for them. It's not meant for them. They're safe. They're protected. And yet Jesus clearly, clearly says, weep for yourselves and for your children. Because days are coming when you're going to wish you never had a child as you watch your child starve to death and you're going to wish that you weren't alive, that you weren't exposed to the wrath of God, you're going to ask for the mountains to collapse and, and cover you. And then Jesus presses the point home. If they do these things when the tree is green, what will they do when it is dry? He's using a common proverb of the day. And, and the idea is that, is that if, if, if green wood isn't spared from the fire... What hope is there for the dry wood? Jesus is the green wood. Jesus is, is the wood in a sense that shouldn't be, shouldn't be put in the fire. Pilate has pointed this out. What, what wrong has he done? Show me what he's done wrong. And they just screamed, crucify him. He's, he's the wood that does not belong in the fire, and yet it is clear to everyone he's going into the fire. So if Jesus is going into the fire, though he does not belong there, then what about the dry wood? The wood that is, that is ripe and useful for nothing but burning. You see, friends, the cross of Christ is the evidence of God's unrelenting commitment to deal with sin. Matthew Henry says, if the Father was pleased in doing these things to the green tree, why should he be loath to do it to the dry the consideration of the bitter sufferings of our Lord Jesus should engage us to stand in awe of the justice of God and tremble before him. If Christ be condemned, what then shall, be the, shall the damnation of sinners be? If God is willing to put his own dearly loved son on that cross and, and subject that son to the fury of divine wrath, not for any sin of his own, but bearing the sins of others, then what will he do for those who carry their own? The actual sinners, the perpetrators of the crimes. 
If he didn't spare his own son, why would he spare his enemies? You might wonder, and the, the women that Jesus was talking to were surely wondering, um, what sins? Well, the, the chief sin is they did not know the day of their visitation. They were so comfortable in their, in their spiritual religious pride that, that a message of, of rescue from damnation just didn't, it didn't resonate. It didn't make sense to them. It's, it's very much the same today. You try to talk to people about um, a, a day of judgment that's coming and that there's a God who will punish sin and that they need to be rescued and they will look at you with, a, with just sort of a glaze in their eyes. They, they have no idea whatsoever what you're talking about. What sort of strange God do you believe in that, that would punish people for just being normal human beings who just do normal human things. What are you, what are you talking about? See, that's the spiritual blindness that, that, that covers the world. Why are these women not weeping for themselves? And the answer is because they have no sense of any danger. They have no sense of coming judgment. None. You see, sin blinds us. And so we just don't see we don't see the reality of our sin. We don't see the reality of judgment, we, the, the reality of God and his holiness, and, and the, the fact that he must and will punish all sin. And so we weep for all the other crises of life. We, we weep for, for wildfires that destroy our homes, and we weep, we weep for, um, for, for, for losses, temporal losses, and, and deeply painful losses, losses of loved ones, and loss of, of career, reputation, or dream. Those are the things we, we weep for. But who weeps for this? Who in the world today, who do, who do you know that, that weeps for this? Only those who've had their eyes opened. You see, this is the great crisis that was always on Jesus' mind. I, he saw suffering and injustice all over the place, and all that mattered, Jesus cares about the sufferings that people experience. It, it matters to him. But, but, but his passion is this great crisis of, of mankind born in Adam under condemnation and then living their life in, in, by nature as objects of wrath and destined for an eternity without Christ. These are not cows. These are men and women and boys and girls made in the image of God. And Jesus sees what's going to happen. I have, think about the story of Jesus and the, and the paralyzed man. Boys and girls, remember that story where uh, the man was completely paralyzed and he couldn't get in to see Jesus because the crowds were pressing around Jesus? You remember that story? And so what did his friends do? They destroy the roof, right? They open a hole in the roof and they let the man down, this paralyzed man down on a mat right in front of Jesus. And in that act, they're saying to Jesus, look at this man's crisis, Look at his need. Have mercy on him. Solve the crisis. And what does Jesus do? You just imagine these friends peering over, looking down. Jesus, Jesus notices the man, wonderful. And then Jesus speaks. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. I can imagine these guys saying, seriously? That's it? 
Your sins are forgiven you. Here's a Jewish man who's paralyzed. He's a beggar. He can't do anything for himself. And, 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 and Jesus notices, he sees the paralyzed man, and all he can say is, your sins are forgiven you? What, what, what good is that? It's everything. It's everything. Jesus saw the real crisis. And in, and, and in pronouncing that, that wonderful pardon, you see, Jesus has just healed this man forever. And then to let everyone know that he has the power and the authority to do what he promises, to forgive sins. The, 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 the miracle was not to solve the crisis. The miracle was to prove that the crisis had been solved. That's how Jesus looks at the world. That's not how we look at the world. It's not how people look at the world, not unless they wake up. I read a fascinating article in the New Yorker um, a couple weeks ago, maybe. Well, maybe a little longer. It doesn't matter. I, you, you might want to look this up. In the New Yorker, it's entitled, uh, The Sorrow and Shame of the Accidental Killer. This author, what they did is they went around and interviewed people who had accidentally killed someone. That pricked my interest as my, my older brother was killed by a man. Uh, Bobby just ran out in the road. He never saw him. And it wrecked his life. And it talks about the shame and the guilt that, uh, the, the, that goes with these people and, and how there's, there's just really no help that the world can give. Uh, let me just read a bit of it. Until 3.35 p.m. on June 15, 1977, Marianne Gray was happy. She was 22 years old. She was pursuing her master's degree in clinical psychology. She was headed home uh, to her apartment. She had the windows of her father's 69 Mercury Kruger rolled down, and the radio was turned to the news. She was 15 minutes from her apartment, driving at the posted 45 miles per hour along a wooded two-country lane when she saw a pale flash and felt a bump. The statement Gray gave to the police later that afternoon is written in the neat script of a young student uh, that might use on a final exam. Quote, a child, blonde male, ran into the street from my left, running in front of the car. I tried to go around him uh, to the left, but I couldn't get by. I hit my brakes instantly and skidded to the left. Police came uh, 20 minutes later, took the boy to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. Um, I'm just reading portions of this. Um, a few policemen had stayed behind. What she had done after she had hit the little boy, she, she found herself in bushes nearby hiding, and she says, what is that awful sound? And it was her screaming. A few policemen stayed behind after the boy had been taken away, and she approached out of the bushes like a schoolgirl. Gray recalled, I was so young. Her voice caught. I said, I did it. I did it. The writer says this, there are self-help help books written for seemingly every aberration of human experience, for alcoholics and opiate use, abusers, for widows, rape victims, gambling addicts, and anorexics, for the parents of children with disabilities, for sufferers of acne and shopping compulsions, for cancer survivors and people who just aren't that happy and don't know why. But there are no self-help books for anyone who has accidentally killed another person. How do you help someone that way? And what you see what the world does is they just say, well, it was just an accident. Talked about another lady, Patricia, who had son had blinded her face momentarily and she had plowed into a motorcyclist and, and killed him. It's 
been five years since the accident, and Patricia leaves her house only to attend doctor's appointments and court dates. She's unemployed and has lost touch with most of her friends. Though she wept while talking to me, she became impatient when recounting the loving reactions of friends and family. Quote, yes, it was an accident, but at the end of the day, I hit him. I took his life. No matter how much you want to dismiss it as an accident, I still feel responsible for it, and I am. She cried, I hit him. Why does nobody understand this? You see, these people are just wrestling with the, the truth of what has happened, and that they are in some way guilty of taking a human life. And it doesn't help to say it was an accident. There's, how do you, how, what sort of justifications do you use to wipe away that guilt? You see, and, and, and the truth, you see, is we are all in this predicament because you have sinned and I have sinned and we've killed people and we have, we've, we've committed awful crimes against other people and against God. We've done it. You've done it. With your angry words, with, with your, your lustful actions, where you desecrated something God made to be good and pure and holy. And you took pleasure in seeing a, a young woman made in the image of God abused. We've done this, you see, and we've murdered with our thoughts. You see, if God is gracious to you, he'll wake you up to what you've done. And he'll wake you up to the guilt of it. He'll make it clear to your conscience, not only the sinful deeds that you've done, but the wicked heart that spawned that deed. And, and he'll wake you up to the guilt that cannot be undone and to shame that can't be explained away or justified away and a debt that cannot be repaid. If God is gracious to you, he'll wake you up to it. And then when the true crisis of your life will suddenly come into view. All the things that you had worried about and thought about and, and, and prayed about maybe even, those things will sort of fade to the background because, because this, this, this one thing, this one critical thing will be on your heart and mind. How am I going to escape the penalty due to my sin? And again, I ask you, who asked that question? Who asked that question? How will we stand before holy God? You see, Jesus wants these people to see what they absolutely do not see. He wants them to see that, that judgment is real. It is unflinching, unrelenting, it's terrifying, and it is coming. But Jesus also wants us to see the incredible love that he has for sinners. You see, he's, he speaks to them because he loves them. He's warning them. There's time to repent. That's the beauty of this. And Jesus, you see, is on his way to the cross to take care of the crisis, the real crisis of humanity. That's why he's there. Calvin writes this, he says, Christ was not less dear to his father when he deprived him of his aid, but he, that is the father, set so high a value on our salvation that he did not even spare his only begotten son. God wants you to see the love that he has for you, for you the sinner, you the person who has done the thing. And the guilt is real, and the crime can't be done away with, but it can be atoned for. We see here just such a beautiful Savior. Most of you remember 9-11 when the Twin Towers fell. You probably have seen 
pictures of the firefighters who courageously made their way up into those buildings, helping people to escape, telling them to go, to run, as they made their way into the building towards the inferno, and then it collapsed, and, and they lost their life. And it sort of shook a cynical nation because of that sacrifice. Well, here we see Jesus doing something so much more. As Jesus warns them about coming judgment, and then he turns and he goes directly into the middle of it. He warns them about losing what they love the very most in all the world, losing their children, and then he, the son, goes to the cross and gives up what he loves more than anything else in all the world, that is communion with his father. And he speaks to them of the terror of divine wrath, the terror that will make men beg the hills to cover them, and then Jesus goes to the cross to bear the shame and the guilt of men with nothing to protect him from avenging holiness. And he did it, you see, so those who know him and love him and trust him, confessing their sins, will never have to have that experience. See, the cross tells us that God is devastatingly serious about sin, but he's also just gloriously serious about saving sinners, so serious that he's willing to send his own son. How, how more serious could he be? And, and, and in the cross, you see, then we have the answer for, for the great crisis of humanity. And, and it's an answer that's concrete, that's real, that, that we can actually rest in. The, the, the article uh, that I mentioned before talks about how this lady, Marianne Gray, she, she stumbles across the concept of the cities of refuge. She's a secular Jew, probably had, had vaguely heard of something about this. But when she heard of a city in, in the law of God that was provided for people who accidentally killed people, it pricked her interest, and she, she read voraciously. And all the rules spelled out in detail how the roads were made, were made wide to the city of refuge, and, and they were well-marked, they needed to be well-marked, and all obstacles removed so that those who had, had killed someone unwittingly could proceed there without delay, and they could live there, you see, in that city of refuge, knowing what they had done and yet be covered with mercy. She said when she first heard of the concept of cities of refuge, she was overcome with gratitude. The Torah was talking about me. She was moved by the idea that in such a city, a person like her could live fully in society without shame. She says, quote, I love that there was a way of recognizing the true devastation that's been wrought, the harm that's been done without condemning the individual. In the city of refuge, you were there, and people would know why you were there because something had happened, something had, had, been, had been done that can't be undone. But you could be there because there was grace there. God had provided a place for you there, and friends, that's exactly what the gospel is about. You see, in, in the cross of Jesus Christ, the, 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 there's a recognition of the devastation that's been wrought. No one is just saying, well, it's just forgiven. Don't worry about it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that in the cross of Jesus Christ, your sins were acknowledged. They were accounted for. And they were dealt with. In full perfect justice, as God the Father poured out his wrath on his precious, precious son bearing your sin. And so the Bible will never say just forget about it, just get over it. 
The Bible will say, run to the cross of Jesus Christ. See there the full, horrifying acknowledgement of the truth of your sin. And then in the same moment, see there a place where your sin can be acknowledged, but you are not condemned. You are truly forgiven, atoned for. The penalty has been paid. Friends, that's the, the gospel road. It's well marked. All obstacles have been removed. There's absolutely nothing to prevent you from, from coming to Christ that way. And that cross of Jesus Christ has the power, unlike anything else in the world, to both thoroughly humble you and wonderfully exalt you. See, the logic of the law is, is this. If, if, if this is what happens to the greenwood, then what's going to happen to you? If this is what justice requires of the innocent son of God who was made sin, then what will justice require of those who commit the sin? But the logic of the gospel is equally glorious and powerful. If God has loved you this much to damn his own son, bearing your sin, then how could that love ever end, ever be exhausted, and ever fail to reach its ultimate goal? It cannot. We get to live as people who've been invited into the city of refuge, who is, of course, Jesus Christ himself where the truth of our sin is acknowledged, the guilt of it is atoned for, it's been pardoned, justice has been satisfied, and we now get to walk in the incredible love of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are today. I think we all, uh, we all get sleepy. We all get spiritually fuzzy about these things. I pray that the truth uh, of Jesus' words here would be, would be truth that deeply convict you and then wonderfully exalt you as, as you realize that the, the, the guilt has been, it's been acknowledged and it's been resolved. Jesus Christ if you've confessed your sin and turned to him has set you free and if the son has set you free you are free indeed and you get to walk now in that freedom. Some others of you are, are still maybe struggling to get your, your, your mind around the concept that God could actually judge you. Friend, I plead with you. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's not, he's not speaking in vain. He's speaking the truth. And your sin will be judged either in your own body or in his. And today is the day where you get to make the choice. And if you've never truly bowed your knee and come to Christ as a sinner needing a Savior, not as a, a hurting person needing emotional healing, not as a, as a person who's struggling and just needs some encouragement and help, but if you, come, if you come to Jesus that way, Jesus to answer the crises that you think matter in your life, you will not find this Jesus. And you will not escape this judgment. But if you come to Jesus Christ just this way as a sinner who desperately needs a Savior, you will find him. Seek me. You will find me. May God grant it. Amen. Oh, Father. Father, we are, we are the guilty. We brought this upon thee. Our treason hath undone, hath undone thee. It's our, our pettiness, our perversion, our pride. Sins that are an offense against the holiness of God. Sins that demand justice be satisfied and, and we've got nothing to bring. Our spiritual history, our religious pedigree, none of it matters. Our, our, our resume of our efforts to do better and be good but Father, I thank you that you've provided for us, Jesus, your very own son, 
in infinite love. And there, Lord, the truth about our sin could be acknowledged and resolved in justice and mercy. Where God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that because of the cross, God can justify the ungodly. Father, you know the hearts of your people here this morning. You know those who are just all caught up in the crises of temporal things and so seldom think about the crisis of eternal things. And those who in their pride have never really met Jesus this way. And Lord, others who are deeply convicted of their sin but have such a hard time believing that it, it's been answered, it's been resolved, it's, it's washed away, it's gone. And Lord, I, I pray to minister to their heart that the cross stands as a testimony of what Christ has accomplished. The guilt is gone. The shame is washed away. We are free to walk about in the city of refuge as people who've sinned, but who've been profoundly and eternally loved. Father, give us that grace. And out of that, Lord, may there flow the fruits of peace and hope and joy and kindness and grace, gentleness, that, Lord, the gospel would transform us deeply and truly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.